Um, so the scripture that I'm reading for us today is Luke 21, and it's verses 5 to 19. So it's Luke 21, verses 5 to 19. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now, many families will have stories of family members who fought in either the First or the Second World War or maybe some of you know, the other wars that took place throughout that last century and this century. These stories become family legends. Now, my granddad, Klasiski, he was stuff of legends. He was born in a small town called Naszelsk in Poland. Now, Naszelsk at the start of, um, was occupied swiftly after the German invasion in 1939. I think it was because it was a town that was had a railway junction, so it would be a key place, you know, for them to take. And there was actually a sizable Jewish community within this small town. It was a really small town, but there was a sizable Jewish community, around three thousand people. But in the December of nineteen thirty-nine, so the Germans came in. What was that? September. 1939, by December, they were all expelled. And we know what terrible atrocities happened to them at the hands of the Germans. A year later, 
in December 1940, about a thousand of Nichelsk's Polish community were expelled by the Germans too. And the expelled Poles were held in a camp in um, Zadovo for two weeks, where they were stripped to their valuables and then they were deported um, in freight trains to another part of um, the country, while their houses and workshops were handed over to German colonists. Then from 1941 to 1943, the Germans operated a forced labour camp within the town. Now my granddad, he was, he was very independent minded. Like he didn't like people telling him what to do. Like he never did. Family legend has it that he was actually expelled from school whenever he was 12 because, you know, he didn't think that the teacher was up to much. So, and then his family had to find him um, a job as an apprentice uh, leather worker making shoes and bags. But actually, he did, he did enjoy that creative work because, like, he would make his own family um, shoes and bags and actually made, like, whenever me and my brother were we, he would make us um, bags and purses. And he was always, like, trying to recycle like old couches and things like that, you know, so as he could make things. So I think he actually liked being creative. But it must have been terrible as a young man seeing your town invaded, you know, and people that you've known all your life expelled, you know, people that maybe you've went to school with or, you know, you've went into their shops or you've went to church with them, you know, People expelled, driven out of their homes to goodness knows what fate. And having to live with the uncertainty of what might happen next. Now I found a video on YouTube of Nashelsk just before the war. And it's a fo it, the video focuses on the Jewish community. But yeah, actually it's black and white, but you get a glimpse of the town's life. It's so beautiful to see people relaxed, going about their daily lives, joyfully smiling, and especially the, the kids, you know, engaging with the camera. You know, it's so, it's so beautiful. But at the same time, it's sobering to think that within a year, the Jewish community, those people in that video were expelled from their hometown. And actually, by the end of the war, of the town's original 3,000 Jews, only 80 of them returned to Nashelsk. So family legend has it that actually sometime, couldn't tell you quite when, but after the German invasion and the occupation of his hometown of Nashelsk, my granddad then set off. He set off and walked across Poland and then Czechoslovakia and then Hungary to join the Allied forces fight against the Germans. And you know, I can actually, I can imagine my granddad doing this. You know, I can, he was so strong and he was really tough and he was determined, you know? So like when I was a wee girl, I had this, I, I thought of him as a giant, you know, he seemed like a giant to me. So I can just imagine him doing this, walking across the country. You know, all these countries, you know, 
And then he made it, you know, because he joined the Merchant Navy. And then family legend has it that during the war, not one, but two of the ships that he worked on were actually torpedoed by German submarines in the Atlantic Ocean. But he managed to survive. Praise the Lord. And, and so this added to this image of my granddad, you know, being strong and tough. A bit of an action man, you know, able to withstand absolutely anything. And my granddad survived the war, but he didn't go back to his homeland. Instead, he came to Scotland when he met my gran and they married and they had a family of nine children. So he had to stay here. <laughs> and many of us will have similar family stories, family legends of heroic service during war times. And in amongst these family stories, the legends, we must remember that these wars, you know, for all involved, they were actually the end of life as they knew it. You know, after the German invasion, life for my granddad, the life that he knew was destroyed. And when he left Nichelsk, he left behind his family, his friends, his culture, his language, and all that inspired him, all that gave him comfort, all that he loved and knew. And like many who experienced war, he didn't talk about his experience. He didn't talk about what he'd seen or what he felt. He didn't talk about what he had left and lost. And I think he didn't talk about it because it was too painful. You know, for all my granddad was a giant to me, there was also a melancholiness, you know, that surrounded him at times. The war was the end of life as he knew it, but after the war, he was given the chance to make a new life for himself with my gran and his children here in Scotland. But I think that he always lived with that tension of grief for his old life and the determination of making a new life. And today we remember the sacrifice of those who gave their lives to fight for our freedom. You know, today we remember all those who fought for our freedom and how their lives, their bodies, their minds can be irreversibly changed as a result. Now, the world has changed massively since the first Remembrance Sunday in 1919. But in some ways, it stayed very much the same. Indeed, Jesus seems to acknowledge the, the seemingly endlessness of conflict in verse 9 of today's passage. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. In Luke 21 verses 5 to 19, the action takes place in an area of the temple, the largest, most impressive building in the city of Jerusalem, which signified the very presence of God with his people. But it had a checkered history. The original temple of Solomon was destroyed. This was seen as God's judgment upon Israel. It was later rebuilt 
but it fell into disrepair and was subsequently restored and rebuilt. And Jesus' words all will be thrown down in verse 6. That would have been really shocking to his audience, spoken as they were within, you know, 10 years of the completion of the restoration, suggesting that, again, perhaps God was abandoning his people. Now, the technical word used to describe this section is eschatological, which simply means the end times. And immediately that feels problematic for us with its images of recurring threats that the end of all things will happen soon or on a particular date. The problem is, of course, that time comes and time goes, yet nothing seems to change. And if anything, the end seems even less likely. Jesus gives three reasons why we need to take this seriously while not jumping to any rash conclusions. Firstly, he tells us, we've not to worry about dates and details in verses 7 to 8. It might be easier to know precise details, but we are not all knowing. That is for God alone and not us. So don't be misled about anyone who claims that they know. Don't be misled by false prophets or those claiming to be Jesus. Second, life is precarious and prone to disturbances and disasters, as when we hear in verses 9 to 10. But not every disaster is the end of the world, no matter how bad it might appear to be at the time. There is a story of a group of Jews in a concentration camp putting God on trial for abandoning his people. After many witnesses spoke to support the case for the prosecution, an older rabbi stood up and announced that they must stop their debate because it was the time for prayers. Life goes on. And then in verses 12 to 19, you know, we hear thirdly about being faithful does not mean that life will be easy or uneventful. Before world trouble, there's going to be church trouble for the disciples. Jesus doesn't say who they are, you know, who'll lay their hands on the disciples and persecute them. It's a general reference to unsympathetic authorities. We often think of synagogues as places of worship, but they were also community centers, centers of administration and education. So they were the heart of Jewish life and Jewish law was administered from them as far as applicable. The use of the term synagogue shows that Jesus' followers must expect opposition from the Jews. Then prison points to the certainty of condemnation, while the reference to kings and governors shows that the persecuting authorities will be Gentiles as well as Jews. So Jesus warns of persecution and suffering, but he also promises that he will be with them. The origin of the word martyr is simply a witness, a person who speaks the truth regardless of personal cost. So all this is not simple disaster. It's an opportunity to bear testimony, to bear witness to Christ. And God will provide them with a means to do this. They don't need to plan what they're going to say 
For Jesus himself will give them a mouth and wisdom, both eloquence and understanding. And this, this will be so effective that the enemy won't be able to withstand it or contradict it. And there will be some followers of Jesus who will be betrayed by their families and their friends. There will be some who lose their earthly life. Opposition will come not just from families, but also the world. The world will hate Christ's followers just as it hated him. But Jesus is encouraging the disciples that even though this will happen, they have to keep their mind, their eyes, and their hearts firmly on God. For the Lord God will give them endurance and constancy. And in this passage, Jesus is urging his followers not to confuse what, what looks great or permanent with the eternal. Only God is eternal, great, and permanent. So stand firm and you will win life. In Jesus' words to his disciples, they speak into our own present, our own lives. You know, we have war in Europe again. Global economies are in turmoil. Climate change, deforestation, plastic pollution and our overconsumption of resources are bringing chaos and destruction to all life upon the planet. COP27 is taking place in Egypt just now. And if national governments and global companies don't start putting actions in place, this coming century could end up being one where wars are fought over not just land, but water too. Fought over climate refugees and land where displaced people might be able to settle. And it isn't just a physical world where there's conflict, it's also internally, emotionally. You know, for so many people out there, there is this internal war, this internal struggle. And I think the disruption and the isolation of the COVID pandemic, you know, has damaged people's resilience. It's damaged people's mental health. It's damaged their sense of self and purpose. So many people are lost. They don't know who they are anymore. So now more than ever, we, we need to be witnesses to Christ. Witnesses to, to Christ in our families, in our, in our peer groups, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our worlds. So many people need to know the love of the Lord. That love that transforms broken lives, broken hearts, broken minds. You know, I know that love. You know, I used to have an emptiness within me that nothing could fill. You know, to the world I looked happy, you know. But, but all I had in me was this brokenness inside. Nothing that could take away that hole, that emptiness. And believe me, I tried everything to fill that. But it just took me to darker places. Until I fully surrendered to Jesus. And I gave permission to the Holy Spirit to access every inch of me. To heal me. That love of the Lord transformed me. 
And I'm a whole different person to who I was five years ago. And for the rest of my life, all I want to do is share that love of Jesus. That love that brings redemption to even the darkest places. To, to what can seem at times completely impossible situations. And as we witness to Christ, friends, you know, what we're saying might not be popular. It might not be wanted. But Christ is with us. He gives us the words to say and he stands firmly beside us. When it seems like it's the end of life as we know it, Christ's love brings renewal. And we can take inspiration from people who are like my granddad, you know, who after the war took up the threads of a decent life. Yes, it was different to what, the, what they had left behind, but there was the opportunity to create something new, something that could be beautiful. And as we remember today those who died in the wars of the 20th and 21st centuries, as we remember those who returned maimed and disabled, as we remember those who were changed by their service and who returned and lived on, let us be inspired by their stories and the family legends of bravery and endurance. Let us be inspired by the stories of courage, decency, and the love that breaks through conflict and violence. Let us be moved by the human experience of war. Let these stories and experiences encourage us in our daily walk with God. Let these stories inspire within us the endurance to continue to be witnesses to Christ in what can appear to be an increasingly hostile world. And it's this focus of attention of the human experience that we can find hope and a way out of conflict and violence. Our Lord Jesus reveals to us a God who demonstrates full humanity, enjoying love and delight and also exposing violence. Jesus is faithful to the demands of love. He knows that he's not going to be spared, you know, on his way to the cross. You know, he shall not be saved from its cruelty and pain, and yet he maintains his love. And on the cross, he exposes the violence of humanity, but he doesn't demand revenge. And as Christ embraces humanity, he also represents God. Our God, through Christ embracing victimhood, the silencing, the objectification, and the injuring, and exposing what violence does. And in doing so, invites us to commit to another way. Because the resurrection is a symbol of this invitation. He becomes a survivor, no longer a victim. For our risen God does not glory in his sacrifice, nor comes seeking revenge. No, the invitation is to reconciliation, to forgiveness. The invitation of a new life. So friends, this week, 
if you find yourself troubled by things happening within the world or you find yourself in difficult situations, find space to ask God to show you an opportunity to testify, an opportunity to witness to Christ either in words or in actions. And take courage and stand firm for the Lord Jesus stands with you. I'll finish with a poem by Robert Brooke entitled Safety. And he wrote it during the First World War out of his faith in God and the assurance of eternal life in the Lord Jesus. Dear, of all happy in the hour, most blessed, he who has found our hid security, assured in the dark tides of the world that rest, and hear our words, who is so safe as we? We have found safety with all things undying, the winds and mourning, tears of men and mirth, the deep night and birds singing and clouds flying and sleep and freedom and the autumnal earth. We have built a house that is not for time's throwing. We have gained a peace unshaken by pain forever. War knows no power. Safe shall be my going. Secretly armed against all death's endeavour. Safe, though all safety's lost. Safe where men fall. And if these poor limbs die, safest of all. <laughs>